I've got such distinct memories of being at home and being around the dinner table, my sisters and her, and the phone would ring or her, her beeper would ring, whatever the phone she had was to be on call, and it would be a woman, you know, at home just in, in a lot of trouble and mum would sit back at the table and then the phone would ring again and it would be the woman again and, and you know, I, I distinctly remember saying to mum at one point, why doesn't she just leave? For you. I'm Matt Levinson, and in the past few years, while so many of us were, you know, really just holding on for dear life, my guest today created not one, but two new businesses that are designed to help women rebuild their lives after family violence. The latest ABS data paints a bleak picture. One in four adult women in the country have experienced family violence. You know, it's one of the most corrosive and destructive aspects of our society. And what's worse is the way it so often leaves victim survivors financially impoverished or really challenged and with battered self-esteem as well. It's a really tough base to build a new life from. All of which makes the work that Mel Greblo has taken on with her businesses Scribed and Banksia Academy so important and so uh, kind of desperately interesting to me as well. So how did she get to being the kind of person who would take on a challenge like that? That's what this podcast is about. Talking to people who are making change, making things happen and getting to know what makes them who they are. Mel, thank you so much for saying yes to this. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here with you. You've had a life that has matched these kind of seemingly twin drives of... Uh, you know, like a drive towards entrepreneurialism and starting things and, and being involved as a leader in different kinds of organisations. We're going to talk a lot about that as we go along. And also community contribution, like giving back in many different ways. Again, we're going to talk about it. But I just want to start back, you know, way back and think, you know, I want to put this question to you. Are those kind of characteristics, the kind of things that you saw in your family life growing up? What was life like for you as a kid? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question, Matt. It's one I reflect on quite a bit. You know, I grew up, I was extremely fortunate, um, had a really privileged upbringing. I grew up in regional Victoria and, um, you know, I was, I had my mum and dad and my, it was myself and two sisters and we had a really great life. You know, we went to Catholic primary school, we went to Catholic high school um, life was pretty easy, really, and my parents worked hard. My mum was a nurse um, and then went on actually to work in um, women's health and at a women's shelter. My dad was a builder, um, so he had a building business in town and was very successful. Uh, yeah, they both worked really hard. So, you know, the, um, life wasn't really um, – I didn't really come into contact a lot with – my, f- my family volunteering or, in, or doing things in the community necessarily. They had a wide circle of friends and I always felt that they were very supportive of their friends and vice versa. Um, but no kind of, um, you know, early kind of experiences of them, you know, actively volunteering or um, being part of, you know, charitable organisations or things like that. They donated to, to causes, that's for certain. I think... Um, 
I don't know what it was in me that, you know, as a child I just had this deep sense of there being a much bigger world out there than the one I was in, um, even though it was a beautiful world, the one I was in. And, and I wanted to see that world and, and other cultures and, and experience that. And so I went on a student exchange when I was 15 to, to France for a year and I, you know, I, I'd been learning French at school, at high school, and, you know, I got there and couldn't speak a word, actually. <laughs> so classic. Yeah, classic. Um, and so, you know, I just was thrown in the deep end, really. Before that, before I left, actually, my, my parents had just separated. And so that was probably the first big um, shock to life, you know, and the first kind of fracture of what you feel is whole and and normal and good um, that was suddenly not whole anymore. And so I think, you know, maybe part of my wanting to explore the world was sort of really driven a bit by that as well. Um, and so, yeah, I spent that year in France and learned to speak French and went to a French school and um, it was it was amazing Um and, of course, I missed my family and missed my home, but it was a really kind of pivotal experience. But I can't honestly say that I came back, you know, um, uh, you know, hugely benevolent and, you know, with person with these deep altruistic kind of motives or anything like that. I, I really was a kind of like most teenagers quite selfish probably. Sure, 16. Yeah, you know, exactly. Who, who's, was, who's benevolent at 16? That's 16. right. <laughs> And um, and so I just went through life really. I went to I went to university in Canberra. Um, I enrolled in a Bachelor of Arts and was studying philosophy and political science and women's studies and just thought this is fantastic, you know, <laughs> English <laughs> literature. Um, and then after a year, I thought mm, I don't know how you get a job studying those things. What will I What will I be when I finish university? So I transferred to to do a communications degree. You'd um, been, you were in country Victoria. I mean, I know you just said you'd gone and spent a year in, in France. Where were you in France? I was on um, the coast, a really beautiful city called La Rochelle, which is about two hours north of Bordeaux. Okay, amazing. But like, you know, still when you think about Australia, you know, uh, in America it's so common for people to just travel across the country and go to a college, you know, the other side of the country, but not in Australia. Like, I think maybe ANU or, you know, Canberra Uni are a little bit of an outsider to that, but still it's not common. What was it that sort of sense that you wanted to go out on an adventure and see different parts of the country? Was that what drew you to do that? I think being um, part of a fairly small community, um, I grew up in Bendigo. It's not that small now. It's actually quite a big regional city. But, you know, I went to school with the same people the whole, almost the whole way through. So, and I loved, I loved them. I loved my friends, and um, it wasn't a bad experience. It was the quite the opposite. But I just, you know, then, you know, when the university places came out, and I, I think I got into, you know, a Melbourne Uni, Monash Uni, ANU, and a couple of others, and so I had a choice, which is amazing. And I just thought, I most of my friends were going to Melbourne, and Melbourne was close to Bendigo, and. Um, you know, like if you psychoanalyzed me or I went to a therapy for, <laughs> for several years, maybe they'd tell me I was escaping something, I don't know. But really to me I just felt like I, I was always wanting to expand my horizons and so I didn't want to just go on to Melbourne with all the people I'd already gone to school with for so long. And so um, – but also actually it was a little bit um, serendipitous how I ended up in Canberra because – 
That's right. I remember I thought I'd travel some more when I finished school. And so I got a job at a local um, family business, family-run business in Bendigo, and they were they provided some sort of software to schools. And so I was in their family office, which is at their home, and working sort of, you know, um, full-time to try and save up for six months to then travel for six months before I went to university. So I deferred. And I worked for two weeks in that business <laughs> and just woke up one morning and said to my mum, I cannot go to that job for a day longer. And it was just mind-numbingly, you know, boring or I just not what I expected work to be that kind of work I'd worked since I was in year you know year nine at school doing you know, sure but it's a different jobs. thing isn't it's it a different thing to show up nine to five in a family's home <laughs> yeah and do this desk work as well so um I resigned and I had to give them two weeks notice so I did my four weeks there but by the time I'd done that I realized well I'm going to uni that's what I'm that's where I'm headed it's good but to have that inspiration at that exactly. point like no actually I really do want to do that three years <laughs> that's right um I sort of hunted around for somewhere to live at college in in Melbourne at one of the university colleges and there were no spaces left and so and then I sort of went to the other places that I'd got in and got a place at uni and um, actually ended up in Canberra because that's the only place I could find somewhere to live that was on campus so um, yeah I I ended up there and and I'm so glad because I some of my you know closest and lifelong friends I made living on campus that first year at ANU. I did three years um, working out of uni in Canberra and I feel the same way about it. You know, there's some of my deepest friendships are from that time and I think it's this mix of it's a big enough city that it has city things but it's small enough that you can do all the things you know there's there's something kind of great about the scale of it yes exactly yeah and this and the student world there in Canberra is such a such a big part of the city so and certainly was back then um, there's a lot more great things to do in Canberra now than there was when I was there but we made our own fun and they were some of the best years of my life yeah. you were really close with your sister and your, your family how was it like taking off to go to France to go to Canberra, not so far away, but still, you know, was it, I mean, I know when I left home to go to uni, I was just like so eager to leave and I left and my mum will still tell me that I didn't call, you know, I called maybe once or twice that first year out. Um, But what was it like for you? So I was in the middle. I had an older sister and a younger sister when I took off to Canberra and my older sister had already left home as well. She was um, travelling and in central Australia working and then over in Perth. And my younger sister was obviously still at school. Um, I felt a bit bad leaving her, really, because my parents weren't together and, yeah, but she was then, you know, going off to university and herself. So life was great until um, I think it was sort of... This, at the beginning of my last year at university, so I, I ended up there for four years, and at the beginning of the, of the fourth year, my younger sister was diagnosed with um, a rare bone cancer. That sort of shook our world, obviously, and they, um, she you know, went through a course of chemotherapy. It was pretty brutal, and that didn't really do much to the tumour, so they amputated her leg to try and save her life, and that was in the July so again, it just sort of shocked all of us and rocked um, the world that we, you know, were so kind of content in before. Um, and so I finished university and 
um, towards the end of the year, we thought that she was going to be okay. Um, she'd had a scan and said they just said come back in you know three months in February and we'll scan again and see how you're going. But so far we can see that you, you you're doing well. And so I finished university in November, exams and everything, and went back to Bendigo to see where to next and knew I wanted to spend some time with her. Um, and my older sister got married and that was great celebration. We were all there for that. Then I worked with my mum for a little while down in Bendigo at Women's Health, Bendigo Women's Health. I just um, wanted to sort of make some money over the summer holidays and save up to travel again. And so um, that was the plan until in February um, we got the news that my sister's cancer had come back and it was in her lungs and all through her lungs and there was just nothing else they could do. And so um, I stayed around and didn't feel I wanted to leave. I wanted to be near her and sort of, you know, played, I guess, a bit of a caring role between my mum and dad and and her, um, the family of us that still lived in Bendigo. Yeah, and she, her and I actually travelled back to Europe together and I could take her to the places where I, you know, discovered um, those years earlier. And, um, yeah, it was actually, that was in sort of April, May when we travelled and she died actually in at the end of July that year, the next year. And so I'd sort of finished university, thought the world was at my feet and... A certain world was at my feet. The world is still always at your feet. What was the world that you thought was at your feet? I thought I could do anything I wanted to do. Um, that that not that things came easily because you know they didn't always, and we did work hard. And but right. n- you know that I had not experienced real heartbreak and or grief or loss. Even with my parents separating, it was it was hard, but not you know life shattering. It literally felt like the solid ground underneath me had given way. Maybe also because I'd finished university and she became kind of my my priority, not sort of going out into the world and conquering the corporate world or anything like that. And so then sort of having had that experience with her and particularly her end of life and how she died, it was a bit traumatic in the end and quite sudden. I think I, I then... I was... A mess really to be honest for quite a while after that um really didn't know where to find my place in the world and the grief was so intense um i remember princess di died not long after and of course the whole world was grieving and i remember just like looking at the tv screens at times going but don't you all know another princess died <laughs> and this sense of you know just the anger i guess is the, such a normal part of grief as well but yeah, so the, the whole, you know, it's not a linear process by any means. That You know, I'd sort of, you know, flow through anger and then denial or, you know, that just intense sadness. And that um, gap between what you're feeling, which is so intense in that moment, and everyone just getting on with their normal lives, exactly. which just seems so infuriating. That's right, yeah. And then the whole... Oh, you know, tortured kind of soul came out in me like, oh, this is ridiculous that we live in a world where we don't just stop and mourn properly and we're not given space to do that. And, you know, um, I just wanted to go into the wild, actually, and live in a treehouse for a little while. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm having a completely opposite memory of when my daughter was born and I woke up the next morning and I was listening to the radio, Frank Elion are in breakfast and thinking, you know, why isn't she mentioning this news? You know, it's so huge. <laughs> yes, they are. They're such peak experiences in life, you know, um, death and birth and 
and everything in, in between. You know, I think um, I've really come to learn that heartbreak is actually our inheritance as human beings, and we the more we uh, accept that and um, build our you know, build our worlds around the fact that that's the truth of the matter, the less we set ourselves up for, you know, incredible distress um, and we build our kind of memory muscle for resilience instead and finding the joy even in really tragic and horrible things that, that, that ultimately happen to all of us at some point in life. I, I really think, and I've talked about this with a, a couple of previous guests. I mean, we, Jess Hill, um, one of my past guests, recommended I speak to you, um, and we definitely sort of went into some of this um, with uh, with her and Megan Loder, who who started FBI Radio and is now at ABC. We're talking about these um, incredible life experiences that, in in some way, breed empathy. You know, they're they're the the sort of foundational kind of breeding ground for uh, sort of a, awareness of other people. Do you do you feel that when you look back at some of these tough things that you've been through, like that, uh, so it gives you a sense of where other people are coming from? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think of that kind of more selfish 16, 17, 18 year old that I was, and then who I was becoming after my sister died, and I took a job with. Um, canteen down in Melbourne um actually not in Melbourne I was volunteering with them but I then took a job in Sydney actually that's what brought me to Sydney uh, the role of national um fundraising public affairs manager and canteen was the um is the organization for young people living with cancer in Australia charity and that was a big big leap really to do that I'd never spent much time in Sydney at all but a couple of my really good friends from uni were here and so I just took the leap and I thought it's time to – it's now it's time. I felt ready to – it was really frightening to move away from my family then though, but um, I just felt like the, I've got to do this actually because I don't know what I'll do if I don't. <laughs> you started on the Victorian committee, didn't you? And was yeah. that in your sort of role as advocating having been through this experience with your sister? Is that what brought you into that orbit? Yes, that's exactly right. So Canteen's kind of federated structure was um, very much in the states and territories. They had their own kind of branches and those were um, run with a com- with a committee of a combination of kind of ordinary citizens and people with lived experience. So siblings or people who have um, had young people who had had cancer as well. Was it a big shift for you to like to go from that, you know, individual advocating for your sister, representing that experience, I guess, with Canteen to this much more professional situation? Um, You know, you were in a more senior role working across all these big programs like Bandana Day and, and some of these other big things. Was that that gear shift from the volunteer role into the professional kind of charity role? How did that go for you? Actually went really well. Like I, um, at, when I was at uni, I d- had done my internship at a um, local PR firm, and we, I was kind of assigned to um, a kind of an annual fundraiser of a of a charity in Canberra, and I just loved every minute of it. And so I felt myself kind of naturally, um, you know, really kind of picking picking the role up and. Um, just running with it and loving it and it wasn't it was a great shift actually because it took me out of the being in the lived experience of it into that more kind of um, professional realm and being able to sort of almost take a step back then from the the personal 
Um, but knowing that I was, you know, doing something that was contributing to, you know, the well-being of these young people going through a really tough time. So, yeah. Yeah, still making a really practical difference. Yeah. You know, um, I read an interview with you in the Herald from about that time where you made this hilarious comment, well, hilarious in retrospect, where you, you said, we're kind of lucky, I suppose, because it's not like we're trying to sell domestic violence, child abuse, or the kind of things people don't want to hear about. Um, you know, you were talking about youth cancer. And I guess considering the work that you do now, obviously you are dealt, you know, are working on some of those really tough topics that, yeah, people do like shift their eyes away. They look away. Do you look back to that time as a real training ground for the work that you do now? Yes, um, and even more so uh, the work that I probably went on to do a little later um, as the founding CEO of Home Hospice. So, you know, I think I was 32 at the time as CEO and, you know, waking up every day having conversations about death and end of life and care and how we care as a community at end of life. You know, so many people said to me, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? Like, doing this every day you're 32 you you're in the middle of the prime of your life and you should be out doing fun things and whatever and I didn't find it not fun (laughs) um and I found it really profoundly rewarding to kind of zero in on the the obviously the fact that we all die but you know you know most people in Australia or around the world actually want to die at home yet only about 14 percent do this is people who know they have a terminal illness and know that they're dying it really struck me how, as a society and a culture, we'd kind of outsourced, you know, the care of our most vulnerable people, whether they're ageing or dying. That that what's lost in that is not just um, not just the wishes of the dying person or their carer. What's lost in that is all of the social capital and the beautiful things that are built around that life event, dying. And so we were really about trying to build communities' capacity to care again and know how to care at end of life and what it looks like um, because it's been, it had been removed from the home only 100 years before. You know, everyone died at home you know, 100 years ago. Removing it from the home and from the domain of, you know, just life, um, people became unfamiliar with it. They'd for- they forgot the skills of how to, how to care and they we started to miss out on that deep connection that comes from caring through a shared experience of loss, I guess, too, and saying goodbye to someone. You know, thanks to modern medicine, um, you know, there's very little pe- that reason that anyone has to suffer in pain. When they're dying, obviously, there's an emotional pain and angst that a lot of people experience. But, you know, that the opportunity to, to come together as community and care is um, is profound. And, and I guess when you're doing it and working with, you know, we grew a kind of network of um, what we called mentors all across the country and um, really created this groundswell of change. And when, you, when you're up close to end of life so often, it just, and obviously with my experience with my sister, it, I didn't see this at the time at all with my sister. I'm definitely not going to kind of, you know, cast my memory back and it's all kind of rosy. It's, it was not. But... Um, you could see in the years afterwards how that experience and then working with other people at end of life, it just shapes you in a way that, you know, there's, it just brings to the fore the absolute preciousness, preciousness of life and this, this perspective of, 
our, you know, our very short time here in the scheme of, you know, the cosmos and what comes and goes, you know, over time. And um, it's like what though what astronauts talk about when they see the Earth from out in space and see space. It's just, it's like the insignificance of, of our little blip of a time here becomes incredibly significant and so I it sort of made me ask the question what will actually the poet Mary Oliver said it you know what will you do with your one wild and precious life and that experience way back then with my sister planted that question in me and so I think that that's why I've gone I've done all the work I've done it's um, I've been driven by um, impact and purpose and you know, for better or worse, I didn't go out and make a lot of, you know, millions of dollars. But, um, but I feel I feel really fulfilled with my life because of that too. You know, when I look at your career path, you can plot it at certain points, and it feels really linear. But, you know, you came back from working uh, with you know, Canteen. And you took up a job with the Art Gallery of New South Wales. We're sitting, you know, looking across the Botanic Gardens and, you know, Art Gallery is right across there. And you spent a bit of time working with Victorian no. College of the Arts on, on an Indigenous Arts Centre bid. You've run a small art gallery as well. What, what took you into that world? Yeah, I think a, a um, love of the arts and creativity and um, I married an artist we had a child together and um it was I was immersed in that world for some time and so and we also I guess we were young and we were trying to figure out where in the country we were going to live and so we spent some time we left Sydney and spent some time in Melbourne and so we had a plan that he maybe would go to the Victoria College of the Arts and study there or somewhere and and I would go to work and so I, I worked at RMIT for a little while and he didn't end up getting into v, the VCA but I ended up getting a job there <laughs> and and canteen when I had that job was like oh wow I can't believe I'm here this is fantastic but when I was at the VCA I had that feeling all over again and the work that we did in um, pulling that strategy together for an Indigenous Arts um, Centre was just I felt so privileged to be part of that and working with First Nations people to to do that and this was a long time ago and yeah it was really great work and I learned a lot and I just worked with fabulous people and yeah kind of um it actually restored my faith actually in um in work because my the ending with canteen was not so great and I probably won't say much more about it but yeah there was there were things going on in that organization culturally that weren't great at the time and um yeah, I was really um, disheartened with what a kind of a, I guess even though it's a not-for-profit, like what a corporate structure can do and be, particularly in a kind of people-first organisation. Um, it wasn't really aligned to those values. You know. Some of the time those things are in sharpest relief when you're in a for-purpose type organisation, aren't right. they? That's right, yeah, exactly, yeah. So this is 20 years ago approximately, give or take. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are the issues around working with First Nations people, thinking about representation, thinking about um, the platform for Aboriginal culture in this country, they, they feel like they're definitely not dealt with. You know, we're really grappling with them at every level of society at the moment. Um, you know, in, in a way, I think there's something about that process that forces you to slow down and and challenge and rethink your kind of instinctive ways of doing things. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, 
Oh, there were, you know, one of the women that was leading the project, um, Michelle Evans, um, a remarkable woman. She's still in, a, you know, fantastic leadership roles, doing similar work, and um, but not in the arts in, in in around Indigenous business. And and then another woman, a creator, a filmmaker, who I met, um, another Indigenous woman as part of that project, Jenny, and. She was one of the stolen generation and what I learnt from hearing her stories and watching the film that she made was incredibly powerful. So, you know, that was, the, that was really the first kind of um, experience I had of really trying to understand Indigenous culture and learning about the history of our country and um, it certainly was not taught at school when I was there uh, and it profoundly affected me too and... For whatever reason, actually, I, I, I don't kind of really know why to this day, but um, and that that cemented it actually. But it was there before that I felt this. Um, it might not be appropriate to say it, but I, I, it's just part of my experience of life. I felt a deep affinity to that culture, and I, and I felt it more after my sister died. And so it, this, I think, it was part of this yearning for me that I had then to. Um, yearning for something much deeper in life, a deeper experience of life than what the the ads on TV were selling me. And so I really kind of d- dived into it much deeper and really wanted to learn more and soak up as much as I could. And I remember reading an incredible book um, by a professor at La Trobe University, David Tacey, called The Edge of the Sacred. And it was all about various um, Australian artists and writers and their connection to the land in Australia and the landscape Um, and he kind of spent a lot of his childhood growing up in Alice Springs and so very very connected to Indigenous culture and lived amongst you know First Nations people and they're in in community and as a white man as a white boy somehow that world was animated for me and and then the connection to you know I grew up in in town in a regional country I didn't grow up on the land but I have always had this connection to nature and that sense of, um, yeah, wholeness, I guess, and interconnection that nature gives us. And so I really feel that um, the sacredness around that for First Nations people and their culture. So, Has that changed, that sense of connection, that sense of, um, or the way you approach your work, you know? Yeah, quite possibly. And so, and, and certainly... You know, I have. I really do have have a. I think intellectually, you can have this, um, but I feel like in the last sort of maybe ten years, I actually can feel it more in an embodied way as well. That I this deep knowing that we are all in, interconnected, and and when I say we, I mean the plants and animals and the ocean and the skies and and each other. Um, and I, you know, I couldn't say that ten years ago. I don't think. I think it was intellectual, but I feel it now. I really get it. And and so that it does definitely inform the way that I work. Yes, um, you know, there's small stuff you don't sweat. There's just trust that you know the the way you do things and the way you, what you how you bring yourself to it is just as important as what you're doing. Um, and that things can take time. You know, um, yeah, I started started uh, studying a master's in social ecology at one point and didn't finish it, but. Um, you know, I was reading Joanna Macy. This is sort of how many years ago I was, 30, 
35, I think, so it's 15 years ago, um, reading Joanna Macy and um, Miriam Rose Ongomer, the Australian Senior Australian of the Year a couple of years ago, her work around Dadiri and really kind of um, that that spoke to me profoundly as well, that, that reading those women particularly and... Glenn Albrecht's world, you know, work around solastalgia and the the climate, you know, grief that people can experience and ecological grief. And we're in a really complex time of so many transitions, and I guess some of this kind of thinking that you're talking about, it's not the kind of thing that you can really do when you're 16. You know, <laughs> like you've got to come to it in time. You know, when I look at your CV, I said before, you know, there's these kind of, you you can map a path through and it's sort of, you know, there's a linear path, but you've jumped backwards and forwards between different sectors and different roles. And, you know, like about, say, you know, about five years ago, you started your own organisation, the Coterie for Renewal, and um, you took on this role with the Impact Investment Summit Asia Pacific. And, you know, both of these uh, really seem to be rooted in these kind of global networks and tapping into um, inspiration and connection and like-minded people and being able to learn from each other. Is that is that tapped into some of that kind of learning that you were talking about, that sense of connection? Yes, for sure. Um, that the, growing sense of connection as well, you know? Yeah, exactly. So when I started um, what was ended up being called the Coterie for Renewal, um, I, it was, I started it in 2011 and... I called it Talking Sticks and I'd later changed it because I felt like it was no longer appropriate to have a name like that um, when we're our consciousness around, you know, misappropriation and cultural appropriation was so much, you know, stronger. When I started it, um, I really wanted... It was, I was just so curious about people's stories and what makes us who we are and... You know that kind of inner inner world that we develop as human beings, or we can develop, or, we, or some choose not to develop. And so I started the work, you know, really trying to kind of bring people together around some you know big themes. And you know, I work, we worked with poets, um, so particularly David White, the um, Irish Welsh poet who lives in the North Pacific in America, and you know developed a wonderful friendship with him over the years and he came out to Australia a few times and we did a lot of work with him around conversational leadership and um, and so I, and I fell in love with his work just reading his work his poetry and listening to him so it was it was just incredible when I wrote to him and said would you like to come to Australia <laughs> and he said yes so um, that really, really shaped the experience. The experiences with him really shaped what we what we grew at the at the coterie. And you know, I have lifelong friends that I met through that community as well. So, when you think back to that time, were there, were there are there moments, you know, whether it was when you brought people together for an event or you know whatever the format was, that stick out for you that are like that's the moment, you know, when it when it all kind of worked or when when something changed. Yeah, that moment I would have to say was when COVID first hit, and and of course as a, an event business, I'm just like, whoa, what do we do now? And we'd never dreamed of doing anything online before that ever, and so we started um, 
we opened up a space on Sunday mornings, I think it was. Gee, it's hard to remember back now, isn't it? It's, it's hard a blur. To, that is a blur and it's really difficult to imagine we even had to do that, but we did. So we opened up a, sp- a virtual space on Zoom, I think it was at first, um, on a Sunday morning for anyone in our community to gather and just be with each other. And, and often we had a prompt or a, um, you know, a kind of a mindfulness exercise or something we do at the beginning. But the... The first sort of four or five weeks, the same people would would turn up to this space and we could see each other and we knew each other's names and we'd known each other from different other uh, coterie events that they'd been to. But what was utterly profound is that we could have the same connection on the Zoom with each other in the space that we created as we could if we were in person. And we had, it just still so clear in my mind, one of the women... She was living out back with her, with her family. I think her, with her husband and her, her, fa- her daughter and her family were just across in the, in the next property, and, uh, but I think it was quite a distance in between. And she would go and she was telling us, and each of these women, there was a woman on the south coast, white women, but each of them had this just indescribable connection to country, to their place. They knew it intimately. They knew the indigenous names of not just the country they were on but the plants and the everything that was indigenous to that place and they share that with with us in this space and they were the kind of people who who gathered and you just don't meet people like that every day but it was um uh, yeah there's something about their living that was just uh, potent that was a a really it was such a weird time and you know, from the vantage point of the end of 2023, it really seems like such a long time ago. I, I was working for the UN Refugee Agency and at the time, and I would be on calls with people in, you know, in Geneva and in DRC and wherever, and we would just be on a Teams call or a Zoom call or whatever. And, you know, we were all kind of experiencing this different kind of slightly angled version of the same thing. And, fearful and is this the end of life as we know it or is it just going to bounce back and you know I think there was something that was profoundly kind of connection creating or catalyzing about that because because we just didn't know and you know like I think you know we all reach out to the people around us to um, try and sort of get some stability in those times you know during this period of COVID you, you know, I start. I said at the start, you like we're all kind of hanging on for dear life, and you started these two new projects. Um, the first one was Scribed. Um, can you tell me uh, before we get into the project itself, like how did that come to be? How did the idea come to you in that moment? And you thought, you know, uh, I'm just going to do this thing. <laughs> well, the idea was probably you know several years in the making. You know, I was having quite a difficult experience myself. You know, at the lowest of lows, um, so I had two more children and um, separated from their father. And at the lowest of lows after that, um, I'd kind of think I'd be really low, like really low and in a way that I'd never been in my life before, kind of on the verge of hopelessness. And this is pre-COVID. And I'd think to myself, okay, so I'm educated I'm supported, I have the love of family, friends, I have work, I have an income. How are women, you know, experiencing worse than me, surviving? 
and and I knew that they obviously must be really struggling. And so I just knew that I just had this trust and I wanted to I knew I wanted to make a contribution. And I knew that it was around work because I was struggling so much to keep my business afloat because of everything else going on. And and I often would think, gosh, if I had a job, I would have lost it by now because of all of the juggling that you had to do. And that the, the seed was planted in my experience, but then... And by job, you mean a normal job, like a nine-to-five? Yeah, nine-to-five yeah. paid by an employer. You know, you could just turn up, you could get annual leave and sick leave and things like that. So I, was wor- I had a job, but I was working for myself. And so that gave, gave me great flexibility, um, but, it, but it did suffer my business enormously. I just knew that I wanted to do something, contribute something to other women experiencing this, um, particularly knowing how hard it was with small children and, and all of that. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it would be. I just just knew that I would just hold on to that in the back somewhere and keep just, you know, ploughing through and getting through life. And then, yes, COVID hit. And, and then I moved from – I'd been living up on the northern beaches of Sydney for 20 years and um, made the decision to move back into the city, into the inner west of Sydney – it was that move, I think, that just created the space for me to really... I'd, I'd thought about the idea before leaving Avalon. Um, so this is sort of 2021 now, and then it, we moved in, in, in August. So, yeah, second year of the pandemic towards the end, you know, mid-year. And, and I thought Before oh, the gonna, Northern Beaches got shut down. Yes. It's quite a convenient time to leave. That's right. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I, I had the space to then think, okay, well, let's do it. Let's just do it and see see if you can do it. And at the time, I was still curating the Impact Investment Summit, so I had that work, and um, and I loved that work, um, and worked with fantastic people, connected with incredible people all over the world. So I'd also learnt a lot in that role around about impact and and the capital that can flow towards impact um, with the right models. And so I really got to thinking about the kind of model that I could build. And But I landed on Scribed really um, seeing a, you know, through another experience really, and that set my kind of the idea around transcription as work that women could do remotely and flexibly and and get paid more than they, they would have, would get paid if they had to, you know, go and do a cleaning job or something. So realising that particularly living in Sydney and the cost of living pressures that, you know, we really needed to lift our gaze around how to support vulnerable women or women facing barriers to employment that, uh, yes, you know, any job is great, but actually a job that pays well is even better, particularly when you live in Sydney um, with the cost of housing in particular. And also so many... Of so many of these women are actually skilled. That's right, exactly. And well educated That's and right. very well suited to, you know, there's a productivity benefit as well to That's engaging right. these women. Yeah. So essentially, what we discovered then, so I started the business um, and we were providing transcription services to mostly media clients, podcasters, filmmakers. Um, you know, we didn't really know where it would go, <laughs> but I thought, let's just start. And the, the, the impact intention behind the business was to, yeah, provide these safe, secure and flexible work opportunities for women facing barriers to employment, particularly survivors of domestic and family violence. So, um, yes, and as you say, they are, you know, often often quite skilled and educated. Um, it's been their experience, lived experience of domestic and family violence has either derailed their career or they were forced to stop working 
or, or for whatever reason hadn't been in the workplace for a long time or they, you know, had never really enjoyed a career um, and so they were really kind of looking at kind of returning to work um, having not worked for, for a long, long time. Yeah, so Scribed was born and and then I know that I knew that we wanted to sort of really make sure we wrapped a whole lot of other supports around our employees and and I guess and, and so thanks your academy sort of became the obvious next step and also um, in terms of kind of funding kind of requirements that you would need to get these get this thing off the ground it opened up doors to philanthropic funding and then um, away we were basically which was great so but functionally one is like a business that employs staff and the other one is a charity that supports the people who might wind up working for that business. That's exactly right. Yes. So, so Scribed is, um, you know, an, a purpose-driven business for profit. Um, we reinvest a percentage of those profits back into Banksia Academy. Um, but yes, it employ it's it's it, it's the employer. We employ um, those women who do face those barriers. Um, yeah, and and a lot of them come to us through Banksia Academy, where they can access kind of a whole lot of um, opportunities to upskill, reskill in digital, you know, with digital skills. So essentially what we're doing at Scribed is mobilising what's actually just a dormant workforce. And and we've, we co-designed that employment model and the, and the wraparound supports with a group of women with lived experience so that we knew that the, the employment model is fit for purpose. Um, you know, we've been able to attract the support of a whole lot of amazing um, frontline services, crisis support services for women survivors um, who know that when the women have, uh, are safe and have a roof over their heads and um, they're ready to take that next step and, and that is generally to return to work or, or stay at work and keep their jobs, um, which we also support in the academy. I love that on the website for Bankster Academy there's like a bar that sits across the website it's like an instant touch this and it's I tried touching it and it just immediately pops up to kind of like women relevant kind of news articles or that kind of thing you know that's the reality that I guess if you're thinking about uh, leaving a, a dangerous situation you know, someone might be looking. That's right, yeah. So if you're at home, someone might be looking and otherwise your technology could be monitored if you've already left. Um, yeah, there's um, the the kind of um, post-separation abuse that goes on, particularly, you know, around co- coercive control. and It's, um, it's mind-boggling, actually. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's interesting how we say she escaped or she, she's left domestic and family violence because particularly when you have children together, you don't leave it. You know, it's um, women always often talk to us about how obviously we know the most dangerous time is for a woman is when she leaves. Um, but I think the, you know, the coercion that goes on with it towards the children as well, um, you know, is, is real and, and can go on for years. So, you know, we're at this point where we're sort of like half a century on from some of the earliest women's shelters. And it's so interesting to me that you're saying that your mum was, you know, volunteering or working in women's shelters back then. It must have been amongst the earliest she, of those shelters. She was, that's right. And and I've got such distinct memories of being at home and being around the dinner table, my sisters and her, and the phone would ring or her, her beeper would ring, whatever the phone she had was to be on call. 
and it would be a woman, you know, at home just in in a lot of trouble and mum would sit back at the table and then the phone would ring again it would be the woman again and, and you know, I, I distinctly remember saying to mum at one point, why doesn't she just leave? <laughs> and, you know, and that's that's your instinct and, and I guess as a as a woman who'd never had that experience and never experienced that fear in her own family, a young woman at the time I was, um, you know, you, there's no understanding of it really at all that, you know, someone could be in such danger um, if she left too. But also, as Jess Hill rightly points out, you know, why don't we ask the question, why does he, why does he, just, why does he just not stop being violent? Yeah, there's a logic to it that mm. seems intuitive when you look at at that woman who goes back and goes back. I guess one of the challenges for you in this business and the project that you do is you're working with people who are in this situation. They're um, they've they've left. They are you know they're facing you know in some cases really battered self esteem. You know, like maybe they've they've lost all the self esteem. Um, they're skills maybe they're someone who never worked you know like you were saying someone who's never sort of had that experience or just hasn't for a long time how you know I know you you were saying before that you develop these with people who have lived lived experience but I can imagine that's something that you're learning you're relearning like Mm. with every new um that's right person who comes through how how do you take that on as a as a leader of you know not one, but two organisations that are coming at this challenge from different perspectives. I think, um, I mean, certainly what we see is, again, what Jess Hill talks about, what we see is that, you know, the the kind of drive behind coercive control is to, to really annihilate um, someone's nervous system. And, and so you might not see bruises, but we see women every day just come to us with annihilated nervous systems. And so most of the time they're, they're getting great support around that and healing, but um, the, the scars are lasting. So, yeah, that, it's that part of, you know, their experience that's, that also then kind of contributes to the shattering of the self-esteem and self-confidence. And as the nervous system settles, I think that that's, that has to settle first before you've got you've half a chance of... Um, regaining your self-confidence and and so you know it's a kind of a and every woman's unique you know so it's uh, for some women they're ready to dive into work it's almost like that's what well that is what they need uh, for others their confidence is so shattered that I mean one woman said I'll work for you for free I'll just volunteer because I, I can't have the pressure you know just starting and doing one thing and seeing that you can do it um, starts to lift that kind of, you know, that dark kind of cloak that you've been wearing and then the next thing and then the next thing and then, you know, then you've got that kind of forward um, momentum and that's amazing to see. And that connection to a range of other sources that are validating who you are and connecting with you. Exactly, that's right, yeah, and that kind of peer support that happens in the academy in our virtual spaces and... Most women can't believe that it exists, that, you know, when they're referred to us by a, one of our referral partners, whether it's a, you know, emergency accommodation um, or a shelter or um, the Department of Communities and Justice is one of their programs, um, 
they just can't believe it. Like, we cannot believe you exist. <laughs> and so, you know, I think what's really heartening, particularly at the end of a really big year, is knowing that the success of what we do is all going to be, I think, kind of attributed back to the fact that we invested in that co-design in the first place. I think when we when we don't design with, you know, with lived experience... Um, and with the voices of people with lived experience, whether it's for what we're doing, whether it's for people with disabilities, whether it's whatever it might be, if we don't do that, we're just barking up the wrong tree. I think we're just throwing out, you know, hopes that something will stick and work and it it probably doesn't have a great chance of success. So, yeah, I'm, I feel really proud of that, actually, that we did that from the very beginning and... It's absolutely shaped the way that you can already see the program's um, success. Yeah. You started Scribed in 2021. You know, we've already said crazy time. 2022, you started the Banksy Academy. It's now end of 2023. What, when you think about, and I'm sure that you're talking to funders, you're talking to, you know, investors, um, you're talking to the women who are involved in the project. What are the success metrics and, and how, are you, how are you progressing? How are you delivering on that? Yeah, there's a number of success metrics. Um, certainly um, women in our virtual hub in the, uh, the academy, it's open to any woman with a lived experience of domestic violence. It's virtual. You can access it all over the country. So success there looks like engagement and, you know, at scale. You know, it, it's built for scale um, the support that we can provide one can be provided to many. So, um, and that's that peer connection, the masterclasses that we have. Um, so success is about engagement in that and seeing that kind of community and connection growing. And then kind of the more kind of, I guess, um, harder success merit metrics are, you know, the numbers of a, a number of hours of digital skills training that women are doing with us. Um, but then obviously that they don't just, you know, they don't just become skilled, they then can use those skills in employment. So the pathway that we can provide to employment at, through our, to our employment partners, so other organisations, or coming into work at Scribe, so then, you know, the number of hours of employment that they have with us. And, you know, a lot of social enterprises um, uh, have a pathway model, so the, the kind of tenure that they have with the social enterprise, the business as an employee is, uh, you know, sometimes as a trainee, sometimes as a, a paid traineeship, sometimes as a as employment, employment just for a fixed period of three months and then they then they go on towards what, what I think people in the social enterprise sector call mainstream employment. The, I guess one of the differences with Scribed is that we are the destination, not a waypoint. And so, like any other business... We, we really want to retain our employees so they can stay with us for as long as they want or need. Obviously, there'll be ways for them to progress as well to, you know, higher paid jobs and things like that. So, you know, success in terms of, you know, our success prescribed is obviously, you know, twofold. Is One is, is revenue because without that we can't employ more women. Um, and from an impact perspective, it's very much about not just the hours of employment and the fact that they're able to, they're able to get a job. We're going to do uh, some really important work, we think, in 2024 that's really building out our impact measurement framework. So what are the things that we know, it, the world pretty much knows that it's good to have a job. 
So what what about these women having a job at Scribed creates impact in their lives? You know, so how many women working with Scribed have have now been able to transition into the private rental market? How many of them have are on their on a pathway to home ownership? Uh, we could really want to do that work next year of building out what that framework looks like and what we want to measure as as impact going forward. Yeah, I can imagine you know children going you know, completing education as well would be, you know, I asked this question before about um, the Coterie for Renewal, you know, when you looked at that and thought that it had really worked, when, you know, the thing that you'd been creating had really connected, have you had a moment like that yet with Scribed and with Banksia? Yes. (laughs) Yes. And it's so clear in my mind too. So when our, um, so I was sort of working on my own until early August when um, three new team members came on to Banksia Academy, our program manager and our community manager, um, particularly as who I'll talk about. And our community manager, Danielle, she spent an enormous amount of time obviously welcoming women into the hub and um, finding out, you know, what they needed and what their journey with us might look like and working off what the co-design team had kind of, you know, built. And so it was on, it was all quite clunky, you know, it was a bit of this, a bit of Zoom, a bit of this, and, you know, there was no real kind of actual hub. But we um, we migrated everything and built um, built the, the actual hub now on a platform. And the day Daniel invited us all to a meeting one day, a Zoom meeting, to take a tour through the hub, and a couple of the women that work at Scribed as well. Every one of us cried. <laughs> it was just seeing the, the love and care that she'd put into what she'd created in this um, virtual platform and the way it brought to life the intention of the co-design group and that the women that were employed at Scribe were already seeing what they wanted to do and dive into and play with and be engaged with. It was just incredible. It was definitely one of those moments. And to not to, to have that sense that this is an incredible team, for starters, we've got it right. Because <laughs> it was all a bit of, you know, still theory, really, you know. So that was really amazing. It's an incredible mission as well. Um, Mel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about all this stuff uh, with me. I mean, it's, it's um, such an important project. Before, before I let you go, I want to ask you three Really quick questions. First one is, what's keeping you up at night? That's quite personal at the moment, actually. Yeah, my father's very unwell, and so that's what's keeping me awake at night at the moment. Yeah. And thinking about, you know, back to thinking about end of life. So, yeah, it's quite a precious time, but also a very sad time. Yeah. And in the midst of it, we live. Yeah, so pertinent and so hard to jump backwards and and forwards on those things. Yeah. But something to treasure as well, that moment. Who else should I be speaking to? I think you should speak to Georgia Very. She's, um, I was fortunate this year to receive a Snow Entrepreneur Fellowship and uh, we recently all gathered as a cohort. There were were nine of us this year, I think, and the cohort from last year I think is maybe eight. So the the first cohort and and our cohort all um, gathered um, for a leadership retreat back in November and I met Georgia, um, First Nations woman, uh, just a mighty mission and purpose and lives and breathes it and she's just 
an outstanding human being. What is her mission? So she runs a business called Deadly Runners and she, um, she coaches young Indigenous people to, to run and, and has a whole lot of other, obviously, um, kind of wraparound kind of development that happens around that. And it's, yeah, it's amazing what she's doing. Amazing. Cool. I'll have to get the intro from you. Um, last question, what gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope? It's not grand, you know, it's the small things. And um, when you see children kind of extend themselves towards others, when I see young people doing some of the incredible things they're doing, or even just simple things, just being caring. <laughs> um, what gives me hope is when people have the courage to, to stand up and, and call out things. And yeah, and you know, it's, it comes back to nature too for me. Like I can, if I'm feeling pretty shit, <laughs> I can just look at a tree and see the beauty in a tree and that gives me hope. <laughs> I really feel that. I'm a, I, I love bushwalking and I often get caught in these moments of reverie when I'm out on the track. Yes, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank if people you, who've been listening to this want to find out more, where do you send them? So um, if you need the services of Scribed, you can find out more at um, scribed.com. That's scribed um, with two eyes. With two eyes, that's right. Um, and if, you, um, if you'd like to find out more about what we're doing at the Academy, it's banksiaacademy.org. Uh, if you need to would like to refer a woman to us, please do through the website as well. Thanks so much, Mel. This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. If you haven't heard the previous conversations in this series, I really recommend you dig back in. I mean, of course, you've got to go to the interview with Jess Hill, um, journalist, changemaker, just hilarious and passionate and committed and really changing the country. Lynn Dang, uh, HR leader at Snapchat, also on the board at the UN Refugee Agency. Um, another one that sprung to mind while I was having this conversation is Sean Christie David, who started um, the social enterprise and restaurant played at Ford. Uh, fantastic conversation. There have been so many of them. They're amazing. They're worth digging back into. If you know someone who'd be into listening to this podcast, please let them know about it. That's the best way that people find out about a podcast like this. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much, Mel. Thank you, Matt. Story for you.